0: Hi, this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm the editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and today I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Angela, or Angie, Caliendo. She is professor and vice chair of the Department of Medicine at Brown University. And before this, she was the medical director of the microbiology laboratory at Emory for 14 years. And before that, she and I were co-fellows in infectious diseases way back when. So, Angie, what we're going to talk about today is where the micro lab is heading. Why don't we just start big picture? What do you think are the major trends in diagnostic testing for infectious diseases today in the United States?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, after decades of people feeling like there was no progress or major changes in the microbiology laboratory, the last 10 years has been remarkable. And we've seen a lot of molecular testing come into play. But I think where we are now has advanced even further, and it's being driven by clinicians having higher expectations for the laboratory. They want results fast, and they want them in a time frame that's actually going to influence their decision-making. So, you're seeing more movement towards what we call near-patient testing, where instead of being done in a centralized laboratory, the testing is done closer to the patient where the result can be faster. You're also seeing advances in technology that are really revolutionizing the laboratory. We all have been living through molecular over the last 10 years or so, but now we have MALDI-TOF, which allows very rapid identification of organisms after they grow in culture. We have next-gen sequencing highly multiplexed assays that can detect a couple of dozen pathogens in a single test.
0: So we're going to get back to some of those tests in a moment, but first, treat me like a beginner. What, what are these tests? What is, what is TOF, for example?
1: TOF looks at the protein signature of the bacteria and allows the identification of it in a very rapid manner. What used to take us overnight for biochemical reactions can now be done in the matter of minutes in this instrument. What you're seeing more and more in the the micro lab is the adoption of MALDI as a rapid way to identify bacteria. But it's after they grow in culture.
0: So if you were to take us into a lab that has MALDI-TOF available for speciation diagnosis, how does the flow of testing go?
1: The way some laboratories are beginning to use it now is blood culture turns positive. And you can take a sample right out of that blood culture, do a processing step and into the multi, and you're going to have an identification of that bacteria in 15 minutes or so. Okay. The key, Paul, is you have to have the workflow set up so that as the blood cultures kick positive, you run them on demand. Labs may or may not have that capability. Some laboratories just batch them and do them maybe every couple of hours or once a shift That is a little slower approach, but it's still better than some of the more traditional methods that we were using. The big gap with MALDI-TOF right now is that you don't get susceptibility results. And people are working on ways to get rapid susceptibility, and I think you're going to see advances in this area over the next couple of years.
0: So if you were to make an estimate of what proportion of hospital labs have this particular technology, MALDI-TOF, right now in the United States... Can you do so? I know that's a tough question.
1: Let me base it on the fact that only about 20 to 30% of clinical labs do any molecular testing. Mm. And so I would guess that MALDI would be no better than that. Molecular testing has been around a lot longer. MALDI, the instrument is expensive itself, but once you have the instrument, the individual testing is actually quite inexpensive. But you take some expertise.
0: Would you say that the major driver of the changes – Is the clinicians, as you implied earlier, or is it uh, quality metrics?
1: I think for MALDI, it is so rapid that it's totally revolutionizing the laboratory and the whole approach. And this came out in clinical use in Europe before the U.S. And people would come back from European meetings going, this is an amazing technology. And biochemicals can be very cumbersome and very difficult. Here you can get a lot of data, a lot of information very rapidly. It's very dependent on the quality of that database. You get this protein signature, and you compare it to a database of bacteria with known protein signatures. As people use this test more and more, the database gets enhanced and diversified. The better your identification capabilities are going to be. And you can use it not just for bacteria, but you can use it for yeast, uh, mycobacteria, molds. Some of those are more difficult to work with than others, and there's a lot of literature on modifying the system so that it can accurately identify a wide breadth of organisms.
0: So let's say you're running a micro lab and you don't have this capability. How do you make the case to your hospital administrators that you need it?
1: One, in the long run, once you pay for the instrument, it's very inexpensive to run MALDI identification. And so where labs may now be spending five, maybe 10 or more dollars for an identification. Um, This is going to be a couple of dollars. And so with time in a moderately busy microbiology laboratory, I think Karen Carroll published on this. It was going to take a year or so for her to recoup the cost of the instrument because the day-to-day identification was so inexpensive. Plus, what's the value of having that information fast? Well, if I can turn around and a blood culture kicks positive and an hour later you know that it's a Klebsiella pneumoniae, what's the value in that, in narrowing antibiotic coverage and getting your coverage on target? And I think those are the important pieces of information. There's an accumulating literature out there when you link MALDI-TOF with a identification With an antibiotic stewardship program that you can reduce cost, you can reduce length of stay, you can improve outcomes. You're seeing that sort of outcomes data come out of studies, a variety of studies um, using MALDI, and, and that's where we need to go. We need to be able to say improving that turnaround time is going to reduce length of stay. It may even reduce adverse outcomes, lower mortality. We're not completely there yet, but we're getting data to move us in that direction.
0: Okay, so let's switch now and talk about some of these uh, syndromic approaches to using diagnostic micro. Why don't we start with everybody's favorite, respiratory tract infections. Right now, it's a big black box. A patient with bronchitis, pneumonia, you name it, we hardly ever get a specific diagnosis. What's the future hold for this?
1: So the panels that we have out there right now for respiratory are primarily for viruses. They're molecular. And as I said earlier, for some of these panels, you can do several dozen. They're sensitive. They're specific. Some of them are very fast. We have multiple assays out there now that can be run in an hour, hour and a half. The advantage that you have is it works more like a traditional microbiology lab, where you just say, I think this person might have a viral infection and I don't have to list for you all the individual viruses they're going to be able to look for a wide variety of these pathogens so I think that's a good aspect there are few of these assays that have any bacteria on them and there's a couple of atypical bacteria and I think there's one or two panels that may have pertussis on there so they're not great for bacteria but for the viruses it seems to work pretty well You can detect a wide range. Now, the criticism of it is, well, I can only treat flu, so why do I care about anything else? The issue there for labs that have adopted this is that, one, if it can better target the use of antivirals, so only people with documented flu get the appropriate antiviral, and it can discontinue or reduce the unnecessary use of antibiotics, that there may be some value to that.
0: Yeah, I would say that there would be tremendous patient satisfaction to have a test that says, this is what you've got. You've got RSV or adenovirus or rhinovirus, whatever, and then avoid the overuse of antibiotics. Very exciting. I have heard anecdotally that clinicians really love these, and uh, I could especially imagine them being quite useful in management of the immunocompromised host.
1: The immunocompromised host gives you a challenge because rhinovirus can make people incredibly sick who are immunocompromised. Viruses that you don't think about causing severe illness. But the other aspect of immunocompromised is that they can shed the nucleic acid for long periods of time, and it makes the interpretation of it a little bit challenging. So you kind of have to put it into a context, are they still symptomatic, or have they moved on to another cause of the respiratory symptoms, and all you're looking at is persistent shedding of nucleic acid. Mm,
0: No, it will be challenging to incorporate the information into the right clinical context. But generally, knowledge is power. That's my view on these things. Let's shift now to diagnosing gastroenteritis. And working up GI pathogens has always been very challenging in the micro lab. What's the future hold here? In a
1: very low yield proposition. The vast majority of stool cultures are negative. There's a lot of work involved in doing the bacterial culture. Most laboratories prior to these highly multiplex molecular panels weren't even looking for viral pathogens. It's amazing the number of laboratories in this country that have moved parasitology out to a reference laboratory and will only do the antigen testing for cryptosporidium and Giardia. Mm-hmm. So as labs see, there's a lot of effort that goes into this. I'm not getting a lot of yield. They're doing less and less in-house. So what you have now are panels. I think there's three separate companies that have FDA-cleared panels out there that will detect a variety of bacterium, viruses, and parasites. Some of the companies have put all those pathogens into one test. Other companies have broken them out into, okay, you can look for parasites, you can look for viruses, or you can look for bacteria. And they've gone to a more modular approach. The value is you get an awful lot of information out of one test. The criticism of it is that you may look, Paul, at somebody with acute diarrhea differently than chronic, differently than someone who traveled, and differently than someone who's immunocompromised. And do I want all that information on all of those patients? Mm -hmm. But this has the potential to streamline work in the clinical microbiology lab to the extent that the lab may drive this decision to say, hey, you know what, I can give you a lot of information in a short period of time with a simple assay, and it may be more than you want every day. Some of my colleagues have said, let me sit down with my medical group and see if some of these pathogens they don't want reported. Mm and work through it that way. One of the biggest criticisms, Paul, has been the inclusion of C. difficile into these panels because there's a portion of the population that you're able to detect C. diff nucleic acid even when they are without
0: symptoms. Yeah. Well, we almost have that now with our current testing.
1: Exactly. The
0: patients who are antigen-positive, toxin-negative, PCR-positive probably don't have the same thing as the people who are toxin-positive.
1: Exactly. And so that just adds a little bit into the interpretation. And Some people have block the C. difficile reporting in infants less than a year of age because of the high colonization rate in that population. So I think there are ways that labs can work around these issues and provide clinicians with a lot of information.
0: So one final area to talk about in terms of pathogens, and this is about TB diagnostics. I thought it was fascinating that the use of GeneXpert really took off in resource-limited settings first. And it's only now that we're adopting it for diagnosis and ruling out of TB in low-prevalence areas. So how do you think the use of expert in particular or other TB diagnostics fit in low-prevalence TB settings like the United States?
1: You know, it's interesting. When I was at Emory, we had a quite high prevalence of TB considering we were in the United States in the Atlanta area. And so we found the test quite useful. Several of the larger hospitals in the city used it on all positive smears which is the cdc guideline that was put out there multiple years ago if you have a high suspicion to actually do the testing many laboratories never adopted that because they don't have that many cases and it can be actually very costly what the expert has done paul is made the test simple to use rapid and on a platform that laboratories may already be using for respiratory testing or some other sort of C. diff testing. And so they already have the technology in the laboratory, and now they're just adding the cartridge to it. And there's some meta-analysis out there to show that even in low prevalence populations, it can be cost effective to do the PCR testing and to rule people in and rule people out. The FDA just broadened the indication for the expert test that if you have one negative molecular assay, it is equivalent to three negative smears as far as moving somebody out of isolation.
0: Yeah, that has huge implications.
1: And that is huge. I agree. That probably has more value to institutions than the actual positive result. If you don't have an unlimited source of isolation rooms, which most of us do not, being able to get people safely out of isolation with one test that can be done in an hour and a half is very powerful.
0: So, Angie, now on to some more general questions, and one is about what we're losing by the shift towards molecular diagnostics and these advanced techniques, in particular, skill in the micro lab, and then also that almost poetic feeling one has when you see these things actually growing. So what are we losing?
1: Well, I think the skill is going to go with the current generation of medical technologists, But the reality is we're having so much difficulty recruiting people into the field and replacing that expertise. It takes years and years to develop that sort of expertise. And so we're already struggling just as people retire from the laboratory.
0: Yeah, well, I'm an optimist by nature. So I think of this overall as progress, even if we do lose some of these skills.
1: But what you are losing potentially, too, is from the public health perspective.
0: Yeah. Well, we've already seen that, for example, in the use of nucleic acid tests to diagnose sconorrhea. We don't have an easy way of testing for susceptibility anymore.
1: Yes. And, you know, susceptibility kind of resistance can emerge before you realize it. And that's the next step. We commented a little bit about this earlier, is the need really to link the identification of the organism with the susceptibility.
0: Okay. Crystal ball time, Angie. What does your typical hospital micro lab look like in... Five or ten years.
1: I think you're going to be looking at these total lab automation systems that are coming out where you can streak the plates, you can look at the plates, incubate them if you need to incubate them in additional time, take them back out and look at them again, um, and begin to work up the colony all by an automated system. And the medical technologists would just agree or disagree that, yes, that's the colony I want to pick. And that's what I want to work up and then it could go directly into an identification and susceptibility system. These systems are in development. Some labs that are at the cutting edge of this are bringing this type of technology into their microbiology laboratory. Micro has traditionally not been a highly automated area of the clinical laboratory. I think that's going to change a lot. I think we're also going to figure out the rapid susceptibility. You know, in some cases, they're doing this by molecular, looking for genetic determinants of resistance. I don't think we'll be able to do all of it that way because the the genetics behind resistance for bacteria is extremely complex. But I think we'll move farther down the road, Paul, and get more rapid susceptibilities. There are some incredible technologies out there right now that are in clinical studies that can give you a susceptibility result within a couple of hours of something growing, which is a major improvement over the way we operate now. I think the holy grail is to be able to identify directly from the clinical specimen. The T2 Canada test can do that out of blood directly for Canada. I think you're going to see that expand. There are multiple companies working on detection of pathogens directly from the primary specimens without even requiring growth.
0: Well, you give us a lot to look forward to, Angie. I've been having a discussion with Dr. Angie Caliendo, who's professor and vice chair of the Department of Medicine at Brown University, a longtime good friend and colleague. This has been a delightful and very interesting conversation. I'm going to have it again with you in five years to see how your predictions come true or not. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Take care.